don't know if this thing's working, but it's on. Welcome, everyone. Wow. It's very interesting to see how people sit. I've got three in the right side, three in the middle, and then I've got like nine on the very far left. Wow. That's kind of interesting. I don't know why, but it's just interesting, you know, like how we sit, you know, how we congregate. I remember once um, there was this uh, couple that had been coming to church for the longest time, and I was talking about how sometimes God takes us out of our comfort level, right? And so I didn't tell them what the sermon was about, but I said, okay, you sit, you sit there, you like to sit there all the time, I want you to sit over there. And then I grabbed a couple that used to sit over there and I made them sit over the entire, and then at the end, they got it. And then I asked him at the end, I said, how comfortable? He goes, I was so uncomfortable the entire time. But sometimes God brings us out of our comfort level, right? He takes us out of that comfort level um, and, and for, for the right reasons. And as we're studying Philippians, um, God is expressing some truths about things that sometimes when we're not in our comfort level, when things feel uncomfortable, sometimes we don't know how to look at it. And even as a community, like tonight. So tonight, you didn't know that Pastor Melody isn't here. You got me. So whether you like it or not, you got me tonight. Right? So, you know, for some of you, that's great. And for other of you guys, I don't know how this is going to end up tonight. And I'm used to Pastor Melody, I, I got used to it. It's the same. You know, I, I, like, I like her style. That's okay. That's okay. You know, God works to bring things out and, and to do things different. And um, that's, that's a good thing. My style in teaching is also very different. You guys are going to learn that tonight. Um, I have a very different teaching style. And there's nothing wrong with mine or Pastor Melody's. We're just different. And so tonight, I've labeled this to be dare to be different. So I'm challenging us tonight, dare to be different, dare to be different, all right? Let's get into the word. Now, there's probably some themes as you've been studying Philippians that, that stand out. And obviously, one of the main themes is unity, right? The, the benefits of Christian unity and the dangers of disunity, right? That's a very common theme. We see it in the first chapter. Um, it's a very common theme. In fact, let's, let's just touch on that a little bit. You know, like we got in verse 27 of chapter 1, you know, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? So you see that theme. And then in chapter 4, there are two women in the church who are arguing about something, and, and he's just calling that they would stop. Right? And this is chapter 4. So you see in chapter 1, Paul is talking about staying united. And in chapter 4, he actually calls out two women in the church who have been... Um, disputing about something, at odds about something. And you know what the interesting thing is? In chapter 4, when he, when he talks about these women, he doesn't say what the issue is. That's on purpose. Think about it. The issue doesn't matter. 
it's a non-issue. And one of the things you'll actually see in, in Philippians is a lot of times what we make an issue is not an issue. Right? And Philippians is trying to get us to understand that and to pivot in that perspective. The things that we sometimes get all riled up about aren't really things that we should. And we need to put ourselves in check. And that's, that's what Paul is trying to teach us in Philippians. And the other theme that comes out in Philippians, you know, people have accused, you know, James of being, you know, sort of works-oriented and Paul, you know, by being, you know, um, faith, you know, oriented, more than works-oriented. Well, I think I proved that wrong a few sermons ago when we saw how Paul described how we should be like soldiers and farmers and really work hard in our faith, right? I mean, that sounds more like James. And here he does the same thing in this, in this letter at the very beginning in chapter 1, uh, verse 6, is, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Two things come out of here. One is work. And he who began a good work in you is God working in you and through you. And so we are all called to good works. So works do have a role in the church. And what's happening is, is that sometimes when we work in the church, when we start working together, and the differences we have and the different perspectives we have and the different styles we have sometimes causes some tension. And you see that theme in, in Philippians. And it's an interesting theme that you would see also in Philippians. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting church. I'm sure you guys have covered this with Pastor Melody, but it's Acts chapter 16, right? This is where Paul started the church in Macedonia. It's one of the few places where Paul comes into a brand new city in Philippi and doesn't go to the synagogue first, right? It's, I think it's the only one, or if not one of two, where Paul doesn't follow that pattern. The first thing that he used to do on his missionary journeys is first go to the synagogue and talk to the Jewish people, and then go to the Gentiles. Well, in Philippi, he actually didn't go to the synagogue. He went down to the river. And we see that in Philippi, through history, we know it was a, it was a Roman city in Macedonia. Um, it, it held a big legion of soldiers. It was a, a principal city that was well guarded and fortified by soldiers. And so it was very Roman. And here's Paul in this city doing work. And so today we find ourselves in chapter 2. And we find ourselves after the beginning of chapter 2 where Paul is, is setting an example of Christ, how humble he is, how he has humbled himself and died on the cross for us. We see that. You probably had that lesson the last time that Melody was here, the first beginning of chapter 2. You know, that beautiful picture of who Jesus is and how humble he is. He didn't count it. Remember that's, that verse? Let's go to that verse just so as we recall where we are in Philippians. He who, like verse 6, 
who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so Paul, after talking about unity in chapter 2 and verse 6, which you probably already covered last time, uses Jesus Christ as an example. Like, Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, and died on the cross. For us, he, that's true humbleness. That's such a beautiful example of who he is. But today we're now into verse 12, and I'm going to read verses 12 to 18. That's the primary focus of our lesson today. I just want to recap and set the context of, of this verse. We may get to 19 onwards, and I think this serves as really a wonderful also launch pad into prayer, into prayer for the church, something that, that is important for us to to understand in our prayer life towards the church. But let me read verse 12, and I'll stop at verse 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in the absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the primary aspect of our lesson here tonight. We're going to go verse by verse. We're going to dissect this and come to an understanding of it. So the first thing that we see is the word therefore. And we see that word therefore. It actually happened at the beginning as well. When you see the word therefore, it's saying in conclusion, make a point of listening. I am trying to make something stand out. And so Paul starts off with this section saying, therefore, he just talked about how Christ and Christ's humility, and now he goes into and says, therefore, linking the two together, okay? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So he acknowledges, and Paul has a special place for the church of Philippi. You can see it in his letter. Um, you can see the fact that he suffered in Philippi when he first went there to start the church in Acts chapter 16. And he has this special place for Philippi. And he's saying, as you have always obeyed, he calls out the fact that they've always been obedient. Obedient to Christ, obedient to the word, obedient to the church. And then he goes on, and he's starting to, to really press on why obedience is so important. 
And really, he's harping back to Christ's obedience, right? Therefore, Christ was obedient to the Father unto death. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. There's the example. That is the example. Our obedience in the church. Paul is calling us out that our obedience needs to mimic a Christ-like obedience. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, when there's sin in the church or when when something is wrong, Paul also talks about how to correct that. But what we're talking about here is not under those circumstances. In fact, I just showed you that in Philippi, in chapter 4, the two women who are disputing, he doesn't even bring up the issue because it's not an issue of sin. But in other, chapter, in other letters, like in Corinthians, he calls out the sin, right? And we see that in the letters. But in Philippi, he's saying there is no sin. In fact, in most letters that he calls out the sin, he's basically complaining that there is sin and you're not doing anything about it. So in the times that, that people don't say anything, you should. And here we have the opposite. There's some complaining and disputing going on, but there is no sinful activity happening in the church. So where's the obedience? Therefore, as you have always been obedient, he's calling them to how they've always been obedient when he was there, when he was starting the church, when he was with them. Remember how Christ was obedient. Remember how you were obedient. And then he starts to talk about something very interesting. And we remember we just read in, in chapter 1, talking about work. In, in Scripture, he actually mentions works three times. Listen to this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, work out. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is a repeated action here of three times. Work, work, work. Starts with obedience, tying back to Christ. Then all of a sudden, he's talking about works three times. And this is a clue for us as to what he is alluding to. He's alluding to the activities that happen in the church. The interactions you have with other believers. In our modern day setting, we call it volunteering, what you volunteer for, the programs you get involved in. We get involved in programs. You come to service. You come to Wednesday night Bible studies. You might get involved in in serving food. Maybe you don't like the way somebody flips hamburgers. Or maybe you don't even like the, the, the brand somebody picked, you know? What happens when things don't actually work out the way you thought they should work? There's no, this is not an accident, right? Mentioning works three times. This is not an accident. This is on purpose. And what he's calling our attention to is the things that we do, the activities we do in church. And they should be done under an obedience. 
Christ-like obedience. Therefore, the works that we do have to be a Christ-like obedience. And there can be a lot of activities. I mean, I mean, you could be volunteering as part of the, the band. You know, you might be sitting there and say, well, my old church, we used to sing a lot more hymns. <laughs> I don't want to sing enough more hymns. I love hymns too. Actually, they're so theologically depth. They have so much depth theologically. Right? But it might not be what you like or used to, right? It might be something different. I remember I, I, uh, when Helen and I first got married, we used to talk a lot about her church experience and the Nazarenes. You were not allowed to have drums in the church if you were Nazarene. I think that's changed these days. But drums were not allowed, you know? And so there are things that we do, whether it be music, whether it be having koinonia, whether it be, I don't know, how the, how the snow is shoveled out front. Right? These are all works, right? Oh, there's too much salt, you know? Complain. Well, I don't know what company you hired, but they put too much salt. Look at that salt. You know? Come on, I, I, I've thought that, right? I, where's, what's all that salt? Right? And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul is, it's exactly these things that Paul is talking about, Right? He doesn't mention them because they're minor little things, right? He doesn't mention them because they're not worth mentioning. Just like these things are not worth mentioning. They're not worth disputing over. And there's a, prof- there's a profoundness, though, in the middle of this work. Like, I want to go deeper now. Like, this scripture here is so profound. Because embedded in this is Paul's statement. Listen to this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wow. So we've got this, therefore, the obedience, Christ-like obedience. We've got works being mentioned three times. We know where he's getting at. There's an issue with unity, right? But it's a church that's very obedient, so what's going on, right? And all of a sudden, he talks about working out your own salvation. Now, let me ask you this. Is he talking about that works lead to salvation? And why would he put works and salvation in the first place together? It's interesting, eh? But it's how he actually states it. Work out. See, it's a difference than working in. Salvation is something you come into through Christ. And here's the key difference. What Paul is saying is, when we get saved, that salvation starts a process, an outward process. Whereas before, we were affected by the outside world coming in. Now the spirit is in us. The salvation has come into us, and it's working itself out. You see, as we work out our salvation, from the day that you were saved, you began step by step for the rest of your life and don't think that when you get to 80 that you've already accomplished or 70 or 60 that you've done it all. Every single day until the day that you breathe your last breath, you are working out your salvation. 
We are working out our salvation. Because I'll tell you one thing. There is so much that God could deal with us that if he tried to do it all at one time, we'd probably be crushed. Which is why sometimes, and I think I I mentioned it in, in the sermon I had a couple of weeks ago, that he knows who we are and he knows how to deal with us. And so certain things he starts to work out early on in our walk. And later, some of the things he starts to work out later on in our walk. And so as we're involved in the church, we are all a work in progress. Do you see that? And so what happens, what happens when you have a church full of people who aren't perfect and are a work in progress trying to come together and do things? If we're not careful, there could be tension, right? And the first temptation sometimes is judgment, right? Well, you shouldn't do that. Well, if God worked out something early on in my life and chose not to work it out in your life right then, but later on in life, who is it to me to judge? Isn't Matthew 7, 1, don't judge? They might not see it or be ready to see it because maybe God has to align certain things in place before he can deal with that aspect of somebody. I mean, my goodness, you should have seen me in my early walk. I was like Mr. Pride. I was going to graduate, become a millionaire, da 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 I had it all, my family all had businesses in Portugal, you know, like I was ready, set, and then all of a sudden I become a Christian, and God says, you are not going to ever own a business. Took it away from me. Man. He basically said, if you're going to serve me, you cannot run a business. That's for me. I'm not saying that people who run a business can't serve God. I'm saying that is for me. He took that away from me because I couldn't do both. And so we had to start with that and then took 10 years to really get to understand that I had pride issues. And now I'm self-aware that, you know, that, that sometimes doesn't go away. Every, every so often God says, ah, there's another spot in your life that you need to deal with. Oh, Lord, gee, that hurts, you know? And so we are all a work in progress. And so some of us are at different points. Some of us have different things to deal with. And that becomes hard when we come together if we don't have the right perspective. And that's why he starts off with therefore in obedience. You see that? That as we're all working together in obedience, we are working out our salvation. We are working out how God has called us to be. And then he says, in fear and trembling. Do you see that? In fear and trembling. Why in fear and trembling? Because when you know how great God is, when you know how pure he is, how beautiful he is, how perfect, when you really, really understand how he is, you begin to feel so small and insignificant. You know? And then your criticism of how things are done becomes so, so far less important. And that is what Paul is saying. You know, we're a work in progress. 
We are called to do works as a family. We are a work in progress. Sometimes things don't work out the way they should. Sometimes things aren't the way I expected. Sometimes we disagree as the two women in chapter 4. But God is working on it. But if you do it in fear and trembling, knowing what it took to receive salvation in the first place, to receive the Spirit, and understood our position before a beautiful, pure, and perfect God in Christ, we should fear and tremble, not complain. Do you see that? Those words are beautiful. They're beautiful. And they talk to, you know, how we are to approach our obedience in the work we do in Christ. And then, and then he talks about, okay, then there's works, and then there's works. There's works based on human effort. And then there are the works that God does. God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God, he calls you. You're imperfect. He still hasn't dealt with maybe your pride or your, your lying or like when I was preaching, my, my colleague who kept on throwing you know, bombs every once in a while and probably scared everybody in his church when he did that. And it took him 30 years before God you know, took that away from him. hard so Paul is saying what's important what is important and God is working now God is working through you no matter what your imperfections are God is working through you no matter what your your sin struggles are God is working through you why because he doesn't see you as you are now you've been saved you're a new creation the old has died. The new is He sees you the way you're going to be when we go to be with him. He even knows the new name we're going to receive that's on the white rock. He sees us that way through Christ. And he chooses to still work through us, even though we're a work in progress. You know? We should fear and tremble. At a perfect God choosing to do that. And it's for his good pleasure. And this is the verse that says it all. The next one. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Verse 14. There you go. See? You're doing all these works. And he's saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing. When... When Paul writes the letter and he mentions something, it's because he's dealing with an issue or else he wouldn't mention it. And that issue is actually constant. We read it in verse 127. We read it in chapter 4. There is grumbling and disputing. The salt on the, you know, the front of the, the church. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about it. Yeah, there's a lot of salt. Um, well, let me see. Is there, does somebody have a broom? Let me go sweep it back outside. Right? That's one way to deal with it. You can grumble and argue who should do it, who's responsible, whose job is it. Um, right? 
Or we can say this, where's the broom? Give me the broom. I want the broom. Let me have it, the broom. I'll have to get rid of that salt. Let me do that, you know? And if you, if you don't like the koinonia desserts, bring your own koinonia desserts. You know? There's no reason to grumble and dispute about it, right? Now, I, I, think I, I think you guys do like the koinonia desserts because they usually all go. I'm just using that as an example, right? You know, and, and, then, and then you guys like the coffee. I know the coffee goes well. And Josh has a little secret on how he makes coffee. You know, it makes it taste good. He adds something to the coffee. But I think, I think what Paul is saying here is, guys, you know, we're all a work in progress. And we're working out our salvation, and that's a beautiful thing. And we're us working together. Actually, we learn to be more patient when we do it in obedience, right? What's, what's the reverse? The reverse of grumbling and disputing. What's the opposite? When we are working out our salvation and we recognize that we're all imperfect and we all have our, our problems and we make mistakes, what's the reverse? Is we become patient, we become empathetic, we pray for the people, we love them more, right? We do the exact opposite. You know, and then when we start to do the exact opposite in obedience and recognizing in fear and trembling, and this is where Paul starts to go into um, the next section where he's in chapter 15. He says, if we do that pivot from grumbling and disputing to actually loving and bearing the cross and bearing each other up and lifting each other up, and just like Jesus said in, in John, you know, the world will know you by how you love one another, Right? What happens? Well, in, in verse 15 he says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. You see, that is what happens when we put up with each other. That's what happens. We are blameless and innocent. But we, are not, we are, but we are to blame and guilty when we complain about one another. You see the opposite? But we are blameless and innocent and without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then he goes on, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That is what Jesus was talking about. You see, this, all of this ties back to Jesus' teachings. The world will know you by how you love one another. And how we love one another, even in our perfections and in the things that happen in the church. And, and he says, you know, that among you whom shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, and so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain and labor in vain. Because this, this harpens back to chapter 16 of Acts. And, and let me take you back there. And just reading verse 17 about how Paul is recognizing that he's at Dor's death probably. He's probably writing this from a prison. He's at Dor's death in, in verse 17 and, and verse 18. And he's saying, is, am I gonna be, is this going to be in vain? Right? But he's saying, but if you're without blemish, 
if you're a light, if you shine in the world, if you hold on to the word of life, holding fast to the word of life, that is the pivot. And then he starts to talk about his death. Right? And you ask, well, why is Paul talking about it? He's in the middle of a letter. There's a couple of things that happen in the middle here that make no sense when you think about how he structures his letters. When something odd happens, like me being here, right, it's different. And when it's different, in the Bible, it's on purpose. What this is saying is, I almost died in Philippi when I came to Macedonia to start the church. Remember, I was beaten, put in prison. And what happened? Did I grumble? Did I, did I get angry? Did I do any of those things? I, he probably, you know, he was a Roman citizen in a Roman city. He could have probably really, you know, started a ruckus. But beaten, bloodied, in chains, he started singing hymns. He was joyful in his suffering. So he's saying, guys, I don't know what you're arguing about. You guys are working together. You guys are in the church. And at the beginning, he talks about deacons. I mean, when he started the church in Acts 16, there was no such things as deacons and elders, right? But in, in the first of Philippi, now he's, there's deacons and elders and there's all this. The, the church has grown. It now has structure. It has leaders. It has all this. It's different than chapter 16. And he's going, guys, when I was in chapter 16 and I was in chains, I was singing hymns in prison. So I don't know what you're arguing about, but I'm sure they remembered this. And they remembered, wow, you almost died when you came here and you might die now. And that's a bigger issue. That's a bigger issue. And then here's how the chapter ends. Now the chapter ends, and I'm going to take an extra few minutes to the chapter ends with two examples. We call them in scripture exemplars. You have Timothy and let me just bring that up here. Timothy and Epaphrodites. They are with Paul. Epaphrodites almost dies. They are missionaries. They are sent. They are with Paul in prison. They could themselves be putting at risk you know, traveling around in those days wasn't easy. You walked for days, sometimes weeks to get from one place to another. So Paul was saying, I'm sending you Timothy. And these people were of value to me. And I'm sending them to you. And they've never complained. And they've always done the work. They've traveled to Rome where it's risky. They could lose their lives even associating themselves with me. And Paul is using Timothy and Aphrodite as an example and what he's trying to do is he, he started off with the example of Christ, talked about how we are doing works in the church, but let's not like the works in the church and how we are walking and working out our salvation and we see things differently and we might be at different places and different times. We might like certain things and not like certain things, but it doesn't matter. What matters more is unity and love and obedience. And that's the message. And he uses Timothy as the example. And Epaphroditus. They are the examples we must follow. And you read about it. Let me read it just so that you see what he says about them. Usually this is at the end of a letter. Read the other 
epistles. But he puts it in the middle of the epistle. Let's read it, and then we'll end. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. See that? For they all seek their own interests, not those of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but, also, also, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him to the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now that is an example to follow. Hey, Missionaries. We think of missionaries, we think of those who have died for the faith, who are dying for the faith in the world. And so tonight, in our prayer, let's pray for unity. Let's pray for obedience and humbleness in the Lord. Let's pray for all of us coming together. I mean, Paul said we are all different parts of the body. When we come together, in love and patience, realizing that we're all working out our faith and supporting each other, but knowing that God has given us gifts and works through us regardless of where we're at. He can do mighty things. He can do mighty things like he does with Timothy. God can do mighty things in this church. And it requires humbleness and obedience as Christ and to pivot away from those things that might cause us to grumble and dispute and really put them in their place saying that's really not that important in the grand scheme of things. There's people that have never heard of Jesus Christ. There are people, my family members, there are people in the church who are struggling with sin and we should mourn for them. There are people in this church who need Christ. That is where our focus should be. There are people that need to hear the word of Christ, the message of Christ, the hope of Christ, the promise of Christ, the salvation of Christ. When we start thinking about those things as being the most important, everything else falls into place. And so if one day I'm walking down the aisle and you trip me by mistake, I'm not going to get up and argue with you. I'm going to say, praise God, let's keep going. You're close behind, let's do it together. And that's what we should pray tonight. So that's what I'm calling us for prayer, is to pray in unity. Pray in love and humbleness, working out our salvation. The works that God has called us to. And let us be obedient to those works. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Let us start our prayer tonight. Let us pray. You can stand, you can kneel.
whatever you'd like. But this is a message for us, for our church. I know that our church is being called, being called into service, called into service of Christ. Father, we just, we just come to you tonight. We come to you tonight humbly confessing that we at times grumble. I know I complain to myself sometimes, Lord, and I ask you for forgiveness when I do, when I'm not happy at thing, how things are. And I know we as a church sometimes get into that situation and ask for forgiveness, Lord. Forgive us. But Lord, we in fear and trembling want to work out our salvation, what you've called us to do, what you've called for us to do in this community. There are people who are suffering, people who are struggling. And Lord, we want to cling and hold fast to the word of life. Be with us, O oh Lord. Give us wisdom and strength. Help us to be the servants you've called us to be. Help us to shine, Lord. We want to shine in this place like there has never ever been a shine to be the light of the world. We dare to be different, Lord. Different from this world. Different from the way people think in this world. Different from the way that people solve things in this world. Because we depend on you. And we know that there is no solution for sin. No solution for anything that we struggle with. The problems. Unless it is with you, in you, and through you. It is only you, Lord, through Christ who died on the cross for us. That is what we cling to, Lord, here. We cling to your every aspect of who you are. You are life in us. We were dead and now we are alive. Let your life, your strength, your passion, your courage just flow through us, Lord. Let us be like Timothy and the missionaries of that time, as Paul pointed out. Being called out. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to have a passion for you and for your works the works that you have called in through us, the works that you have called us to do, the works that you work through us. Lord, I pray for everyone here, everyone listening, everyone online, everyone who will listen, that they would understand and come to understand that there are works that you are calling them to. And that those works are for your pleasure, Lord, your divine pleasure. And that you have ordained them to be Oh, Lord, 
Sometimes words don't even express our love for you. Help us to love one another. Help us to lift each other up. To step into the gap. To hold someone's hand. To say something of encouragement to another. To put our hand to the plow. To spread the seed. To watch it grow and and water it, Lord, with neighbors and family members and with each other. Help us to see the things that are important to you. Embed them within us so that they're important to us. It is you, Lord, and through you and in you that all things are done. We praise you and we thank you. We glorify your holy name. There is no one greater than you. You died on the cross. You humbly went to the cross. For what? For us. Lord, help us to be obedient. Obedient to your calling. Help us to obey that still, small voice. That spirit working in us. the call in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, thank you.